Hello and welcome to the Cultural Peeps podcast. My name is Ian Wielden and I'm a lecturer in the School of Arts and Cultures at Newcastle University. This series is part of an ongoing project which explores different career pathways across the museum, gallery, heritage and wider cultural sectors. I really want this series to do three things. The first is to help early career professionals understand the huge range of ever-changing job profiles that now exist. The second aim is to help those professionals interpret job titles in the context of different venues and organisations. Sometimes jobs with the same title can be radically different depending on the organisation. The third aim is to help listeners understand that the people that make up any field of work are all human and that in turn plays a significant part in their unfolding career pathway and decision-making processes. A few caveats. The recordings that form the basis for the podcasts aren't technically perfect. They're often grabbed in busy offices and in between meetings, so you can frequently hear the everyday world of work whirring on in the background. Just a final note, these podcasts are edited down from longer conversations, but I've tried to keep in as much of the original content as possible. Welcome to episode 5 of the Cultural Peeps podcast. I'm outside the Discovery Museum in Newcastle, which is where I recorded today's guest, the Director of Tyne and Weir Archives and Museums, Ian Watson. We start the conversation with a discussion around Ian's current role as Director, during which I ask him how he defines himself. And there are similarities to the answer given here with the answer given by Bill Griffith back in episode 1. Whereas Bill answered an archaeologist, Ian answers the question with the term historian and goes on to say that our past is our clue to learning about the future. A really interesting response and reflects his connection with an area of interest that motivated him to initially pursue a career in the museum sector. There are also some interesting discussions here around the terms curator, editor and producer and how terminology in the sector is always changing and can be interpreted very differently depending on both the organisation that you work in and the context that you find yourself working in as a professional. Ian goes on to talk about his interests in both science and the humanities and how he struggled to reconcile these dual interests through the subject option systems that were available in schools at the time. And we also talk about his interest in archaeology and scientific analysis, something that led to one of his first roles, which involved thermoluminescent dating of quartz in pottery. Ian then went on to undertake a PGCE before starting to combine all of these different interests and skills as he moved into a role at Walls End Heritage Centre. The next role saw Ian working in Durham as the studies manager of 20 local libraries, four museum collections and the county archaeology service before applying for the post as senior curator of what was then the Hancock Museum, now the Great North Museum. Ian was seconded from the Hancock to Newcastle University to prepare the first stages of an £8.7 million heritage lottery bid to redevelop the museum following which he became first the assistant director and then the director of Tyne and Weir Archives and Museums. A quick note about the recording, I had a really sore throat during this episode, so please excuse my croakiness, 
and thanks to Ian for being so understanding. In addition to things I've mentioned so far in this introduction, I've put links to sites, organisations and projects mentioned in the conversation in the podcast description. So if there is anything that you'd like to look up that Ian and I talk about, then that's a good starting point. Don't forget you can follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud and Facebook using the handle Cultural Peeps. And if you want a bit more information about the Careers Pathway project or about any of the conversations or participants, then there's a project blog which is available at culturalpeeps.wordpress.com. That's it from me for now. I hope you enjoy the episode and I hope you find it useful. Thank you very much for joining me today, Ian. The first question is just to say in a few words who you are and, and what your current role is. I have two answers when people ask me what I do. Very often I say I'm a historian. Um, and I think the, and what I say, the reason I say I'm a historian is because I think the past is our clue to learning about the future. I don't say that in a nostalgic, um, retrospective way, but actually about learning, l- learning the lessons and addressing some of the big challenges in society. And, and I think, um, as a historian, we have a, have a lot to, to offer. Um, the other answer that I sometimes give is to say I run a business that employs 200 people, turns over about £9 million a year, and has um, about 1.3 million users of our services every year. So you haven't used the word director or chief executive in there. So you've used the word historian. Does that link back to why you got involved in museums in the first place? I think it does, because I, th- I think, you know, to work in this business, you have to have a passion for it. And it's almost the first and most important thing to do. So, you know, everything that we do, you know, raising money is desperately important part of what yeah. I do. But I don't raise money for the sake of raising money. I raise money for the sake of providing the services, engaging the people, working with the communities, telling the stories. Yeah. Um, that's why I do it. So that, that, that mission, that purpose is why I get out of bed in the morning. Do you think that job titles are important in the sector For example, the words that we've used to describe people that run museums has changed quite significantly over the years, from curator through to director, and now increasingly we see the term chief executive used to describe somebody that runs a trust of museums. I think language is very important, and I mean I think it's interesting because I mean a word a word like curator is a very loaded term in in my view, yeah. and it depends on your background what you mean for mean by it. If you're an archaeologist, you know, very specifically a curatorial archaeologist, very specifically means somebody is looking after um, data usually about sites and monuments records and historic environment records. Yeah. Um, it's not a museum archaeologist. If you're a fine art person, who has a very specific, yeah. contemporary art person, a very specific terms in the way you you create art shows Um, if you're in a museum it's often quite split and I think you know historically it perhaps was about people whose main focus was looking after collections now you know very many more curators are much more heavily involved with um, direct uh, public engagement uh, production of exhibitions um, public communication and and, and so on and um, you know what we're seeing is also some 
interesting new roles and titles. You know, the word producer coming in yeah, quite a lot. Yeah. And so it's, you know, it's are we the creators of content or are we the editors of content? And you know, p- people, I mean, Neil McGregor, Nick Sirota have both said really quite interesting things about that, about that role of sort of editor versus curator. So I, I think, yes, we're in, a, we're in a period of change, but there's always a period of change. Yeah, Nothing stands whether, still. Yeah, yeah of course. How did you arrive in, in the role? That, what's your journey? How did you, you get to be the historian and the person that runs, the, if you like, the business side of, of, of Tidalware Archives and Museums? I think everybody, when you look back on your career, you can kind of see a narrative, but if you had to go back to the start of it, there's no way you could look forward and see how, how you'd get there. So um, I, did, I did an archaeology degree uh, straight, out of, straight out of school, went, went to university, and... The reason for doing archaeology was very much around I wanted something that had um, a physical, practical, tangible side to it. I really didn't want to spend three years as an I perceived at the time, rightly or wrongly, as being wholly theoretical. Right. So that, that haptic connection with, uh, ob- with objects, in that case archaeological objects, was really important to me at the yeah. time. I got very interested in scientific analysis, and I'd always been somebody who couldn't quite decide if I was on the arts or the sciences, couldn't make my mind up. That's really interesting. Yeah, and that's why, another reason archaeology actually appealed. So I ended up working at the interface kind of between archaeology and applied physics. So I went and did um, a taught postgrad in Bradford, the scientific methods in archaeology course, and um, spent, spent some time after that doing a little bit of work in, um, in Oxford in the Research Lab for Archaeology in Oxford. Then a research assistantship at Durham, um, Durham University, actually working in that, in that area of thermoluminescent dating. So very lab-based analytical techniques. Yeah. Did a couple of years of research and then decided that wasn't really what I wanted to do. It was great and I got a lot out of it, learned a lot. This was actually, at Durham? This was in Durham, yeah. yeah, okay. yeah. And, and this... Um, because the research was very lab-focused and it was very um, object-focused and very, very material-focused. I mean, basically, it was analysing uh, quartz grains in, in pottery. Oh, um, okay. Fascinating fascinating work, but it wasn't what I wanted to spend my whole career doing yeah. because I realised I was more of a people person yeah. than a, a lab-based person. So my, my, way, my way into connecting with people was to go and do a teaching qualification, do a PGCE, yeah. which I completed a PGCE in English, believe it or not. Right. So qualified as a secondary school English teacher. And like all my colleagues on the PGCE course, was applying for jobs in, in schools. And the job came up in a museum that was half um, uh, learning work. So I, I guess you'd call it assistant education officer kind of role, yep. working with school groups, um, with family groups and so on. And half general curatorial work, quite an unusual post at yeah. the time, but quite an unusual post now. But it suited me perfectly with a background, yeah, yeah. A background in uh, archaeology, then quite a lot about objects. And this, this particular museum had a strong Roman collection, so it really suited me. Um, and it had the, the, the teaching element in, and it was a new, it was a heritage centre, it was a new heritage centre, so I was able to sort of shape that learning programme from the start and get some great experience sort yeah. of on the job. So just to go back a little bit, you said you were kind of torn between the arts side of things and, and the history side of things, or did you say sciences? Sciences, sciences. Si- talking the arts and sciences, so yeah. So how, how did that work? So we just, you're good at both of those at school. Yeah, yeah, and had to make a decision at, at, at A-level because what I really wanted to do was I, I wanted to do English, history, maths and physics at A-level, um, and the school said, no, you can't. Um, 
it was just about possible in the timetable. It would have been a bit of a stretch, but it would have been just about theoretically possible. But the school said, no, this, you know, this is, this is too much. Uh, yes, you could do four A-levels, but um, they've got to be in subjects that have a bit more uh, commonality. And yeah, you're okay. going to really struggle to do these and get the grades, and we're not going to allow you to do it. You know, right or wrong, who knows? That was, that was the decision. Yeah. Um, so I couldn't do those, but always, always had that hankering. And that, I guess, is why I ended up you know, later as a postgrad reading an awful lot of physics, uh, you know, degree-level physics textbooks right. in order to get me through my scientific methods in archaeology. So I haven't, haven't got degree-level physics, but I caught up on some of it yeah. at, a, at a later stage. And, you know, I think it's a challenge in the UK education system that for some people we have to specialise too. And some people, obviously, you know, some people know they're always going to be an arts person, a humanities person, a yeah. sciences person. But frankly, some of us don't. And some of us can move happily between... You know, we met. Well, I'm never going to be a Nobel Prize-winning scientist. That's not <laughs> what I'm saying. But 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 I, I enjoy science and I'm interested by it and I have some knowledge and aptitude. Yeah. And uh, I would certainly have benefited, I think, from a curriculum that was that was broader, perhaps like some of the more more like some of the continental European curriculum. Yeah. Where did those those influences come from? Was it from your parents? Did did their occupations influence you? Uh, well. I'm not sure. I, I mean, it's interesting. Both my parents were librarians, so you could say actually, you know, oh, right, two okay. parents as librarians, and you end up in a museum. I mean, there's a bit of simpatico going yeah, on yeah, there. Yeah. Um, uh, arts and sciences. Um, I just general thirst for knowledge. I think you know, I I'm interested and stimulated by the world around me, and want to what always wanted to know, always wanted to know how things worked, wanted to know more about things. Yeah. Found it helped when I understood how things worked, and that was that kind of that scientific questioning. That went along, but great love of language, hence doing, you know, hence doing English, English the subject yeah. for my PGCE, which is, and, and if I hadn't done archaeology at university, I'd have done English. So I actually applied to university to do English, oh, right, was accepted, okay. and the summer before um, before university, had had this moment of thinking this is going to be too theoretical. So I wrote to the university I'd been accepted by and said, "Can I change from archaeology from English <laughs> to archaeology?" And you know, a university accepted me, which was great. So at that point, you didn't necessarily have a, a clear defined idea even of an area that you wanted to work in. So you were kind of just exploring the subject. Yeah, I think at, eight, at, at 18, 19, I had absolutely were... no idea of... I don't think I even knew what sort of jobs were out there. So it was very yeah. much, you know, what, what's the next step? Um, curiosity led me to university to explore ideas, develop things, develop yeah. my thinking. So absolutely, I was up for that. But no sense of, of what I might do at the end. Right. And did you have any interaction with, say, careers advisors during that time at school, or was that something that that was absent? I think there was very little careers advice at that stage. Yeah, yeah. So no, I, can't, I can't remember any real guidance to teachers or anything like that. that might have come yeah, teach, I mean, teachers, I think, had quite an influence, um, and you know, I was certainly encouraged by teachers to do things, largely things which I didn't do. <laughs> I was largely, largely, largely influenced to do a history degree, which right. I didn't want to do, much right. as I loved it. And I now sort of found myself as a historian, which is interesting. Yeah. But I was really heavily uh, encouraged to do a history degree. But I really didn't want to do that at that point. Right. That's, that's really interesting. So you must have been surrounded by, you must have been in a household of books if both your parents were librarians. So you could have gone two ways there. You could have rejected yeah. it completely. And yeah, yeah. Yeah, household absolutely full of books. Even the garage had, had books in it. <laughs> uh, a massive number of books. Yeah. Have there been any points along the way that you've felt 
conflicted or torn in the decision-making processes that you've had, either between, I guess, even between jumping between jobs that you've had, because there's been quite a range there that you outlined. Yeah, I think the big, the big conflict was finishing university. And um, finishing university, I went for um, jobs in business. Right. So um, at, at the time, various employers, particularly people like banks, accountancy firms, came around the universities and, you know, it was called the Milk Round at the time, mm. and uh, I, I got a job working for a bank in Dartford, and I was about to start working for this bank in, in Dartford as, as a trainee on their graduate apprenticeship programme, and then about eight weeks before I was supposed to go, I just thought, I can't do this, and I wrote and said, I'm not coming, I didn't know at that time what I was going to do yeah. next. So I thought, you know, having finished university, I thought, I'll get a job, and I'll get a job, it's going to be well paid, and that'll be my career. Um, and so went, thought I'd go into, into the bank and then really decided this, this is not what I want to do. Yeah. So that sounds, you've done that a couple of times, I might have it, where you've not necessarily known where you wanted to be, but you've known exactly where you didn't want to be. So you've kind of steered away from things that you thought maybe were troubled water or potentially likely to, to be something that you weren't interested in or couldn't commit to. Yeah, I, I think so. And I think in the early stages of your career, that, that's really important because, you know, at those stages, you haven't got a great deal of, of experience. You've got your interest, you've got your enthusiasm. Yeah. As you build experience, that becomes something really valuable that, you know, I really think you need to find a way to utilise. Yes, you change what you do, but, you know, not, I think, to lose that, the value of that experience is, 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 is a real shame. Yeah. In the early stages of your career, where you haven't got that, um, I, th- I think... Uh, you know, you need the opportunity to make mistakes, to do things, to try things, to yeah. see what happens. And, you know, I was lucky enough to be able to do that and then pull back from some of the things yeah. I didn't want to do. Yeah. In your peer group, were you part of a group of people that had defined um, career intentions or were there a group of people that you were friends with that were all in a similar boat there? I think a mix, to be fair. I think, you know, some of my friends knew exactly what they were going to do right. and, and the career was mapped out. And life has proved that to be the case, you know, right, okay. 35, 40 years on. Um, <laughs> uh, and other people were less sure and, and it was more exploratory and have had yeah. different careers. So I think, I think it was a mix. So you started working, what was the first job that you had, did you say? First job was in Durham University yeah, in, in doing okay. research. And then um, after doing teacher training, uh, second job was working what was then Walls End Heritage Centre, right, okay. um, which later turned into Segadoon. Later turned into Segadoon. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So that must have been quite seminal because there's a clear DNA, isn't there, between that job and what you're doing now? Yeah, yeah. That 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 really was, I, I guess, the big year zero. Although, yeah, year zero. Though, again, I didn't realise it at the time, yeah. but but yes, that sense of being part of um, having got into the the more public facing side of, of the heritage business yeah. and, and the heritage industry. That I think was was. A, pretty significant moment yeah what was the role there and well um, it was it was called i mean again it was a very unusual it was called assistant manager right, of the okay. heritage center yeah. um but basically it was say, about half the time was working with school groups and half the time was working on um exhibitions yeah. um sometimes physically building them with you know hammer and hammer and nails yeah. um mounting photographs with cow gum and yeah, spray yeah. mount very kind of practical as well as you know, writing stuff, working with collections. Um, amazingly, luckily, you know, in my first sort of 18 months, got to work on a complete redisplay of, of, of the okay. permanent galleries at the time. So you got which a bit of everything there. Got a bit of everything. Yeah. So it really was, you know, by chance, it was like a really great apprenticeship yeah. in, in getting a lot of experience because obviously I hadn't come through a museum studies background. Yeah. So I hadn't got that um, either practical or theoretical knowledge that you'd get from doing yeah. a museum studies course. I'd, I'd got 
some archaeological experience, you know, digging an archaeology degree. I knew about analytical techniques, but I knew nothing about um, display, yeah. presentation, interpretation, other than obviously having some skills from doing a PGCE yeah. and having some knowledge about communication. communication yeah. but, but in a completely different atmosphere, although obviously you, you can apply some of the knowledge and the, and the learning, yeah. but had to devise how to apply that. So had, had, no, you know, had no, came into museums with no museum training yeah. or experience. And at, at that point, were there people within that organisation that were guiding you or were you finding all of that out for yourself? No, there the, the was there was guidance. I mean, that was that was the good thing about coming into you know, a large museum organisation at the time. Yeah. So you know there were specialists. We had we had designers who yeah. had great knowledge and experience. Um, my manager had completed a museum studies course, so yeah. he had he had that kind of theoretical and practical knowledge. Yeah. So you know, and I think in those early days, he did give me some mentoring. Yeah, yeah. So after Walls End Heritage Centre, what what came next after that? It was a fairly interesting time. This was the late 1980s. We had rate capping under, okay. under the then government yep. and some significant uh, austerity, uh, public funding cuts. I became manager of the Heritage Centre when the, the, the previous manager left to go on to a new job. Um, but my post wasn't replaced, again, yep. given that, that present sort of financial environment. Um, and then as a result of sort of changes and, and, and funding, um, I actually moved from there into a curatorial post elsewhere in Tynaway Museums and became um, Keeper of Science right. for Tynaway Museums, yep. uh, using some of that sort of interest and using some of my science knowledge yeah, yeah. and an interest. So I got to use that, looked after the science collection for a, for a while. Um, then an opportunity came up and I moved across to be a learning officer uh, in Tynaway Museums. So again, hugely varied. Hugely yeah. varied. And so, you know, you can move between, the, there are, you know, Silos are to some extent what we create, yeah. And if you've got those description, those yeah, static yeah, job descriptions, yeah, but yeah. moved there, and then um, job came up uh, working for Durham County Council as which was called sort of County Durham Studies Manager, which was mm-hmm. really a kind of historian and working with library and museum collections across a variety of sites, so of twenty libraries right. and four um, four museum collections and the County Archaeology Service. For, um, for Durham County Council, and so moved there to take on that role, which was the first um, for this sort of senior manager type role, yeah. taken on part of a, a large management team in um, a large department in a local authority. So again, there's a real pattern there, isn't there? Which is you're between that learning and curatorial, so outward yeah. and inward facing simultaneously. Yeah. Which so. yeah, and, and I think you know what I would recognise is is that curatorial is also outward facing. Yeah, and you know I, I recognise the fact you know a, a good specialist curator who works with specialist interest groups in the public is doing exactly the same sort of work as an outreach member of staff working with community groups. It's about that communication um, and it may be slightly different audiences, it may be in a different form, but also um, to me those great curators with fantastic knowledge always good and well with the public. People yeah. love meet the, the, people recognise where people have got that knowledge yeah. and that interest yeah. and you put them together and it's usually magic. After Durham? After Durham, I did nine years in, in Durham and loved that work and it was really interesting working across um, libraries where very often in some of those small um, towns and villages in, in, in County Durham, the library was the main social place. Yeah, so yeah. putting on like, local history type events, you'd get a fantastic turnout yeah, in those small yeah. communities because that, that was the, the social activity, it was great fun. And then 
uh, got a job as senior curator of the then Hancock Museum, um, and so came back to Newcastle. So that takes us to where that was two thousand and one. Oh right, okay. Yes, right. I didn't. Yes, I've done nine. Done my nine years, nine years in, in, yeah. in Durham. Okay. Um, came back here in in Tallinn in two thousand and one. Yep. Um, and time of great change. Newcastle Gateshead bidding for capital of culture. Yeah. Yep. Um, Newcastle University planning for the future development of its of its museums and yeah. look at bringing the museums more together yeah. so great you know great opportunity um and got involved with the process of which became the redevelopment of, of great north museum hancock did you write the bid for for the great north museum yeah hancock? i mean the, the, there was a first stage to the to the process really as a, as a sort of developing ideas mm. um and then uh when we sort of re-looked at the budget and the money that was available um there was a bit of replanning went on and uh, I was seconded across to Newcastle University for about seven months right, okay. to write the first stage Heritage Lottery Fund bid. How did so, you find life in the university? It, it was, it was it, well, I think it was quite different to what I'd been doing, but it was a very strange um, process because, you know, really I was part of a team. There were, there, there were, there were two of With us a, who had a task for seven months remit, yeah. to do one thing um, and... Uh, yes, we were working within the university administration, so you know, we were reporting directly into, through the, the development office to the um, deputy vice chancellor at the time. Right. So it was a high-profile project yeah, in, in Newcastle University. So then you you became deputy. Yeah, yeah. So during that period, um, Alec Coles, who was then director at at, at Twan, uh, created the post of um, assistant director, effectively as his deputy. And yeah. I applied for that post while I was working on the Great North Museum project. Yeah. Got that post. So when that bid was submitted, moved back to, to Twam as um, assistant director. Yeah. Did that for, uh, where are we, uh, five years. And then when Alec went off to Australia, I was initially appointed as interim director and then became director in, later in 2010. That takes you to, to where you are now, which is yeah. you're officially the director of Tynemuir Archives and Museums. Yeah. So what does what does that mean what what does that what's your average day look like stroke week <laughs> stroke month <laughs> i'm yeah. sure there's no average day for you there is there is no average day but you know clearly um a very big part of the focus of what i'm personally doing is around finance and funding yep. so you know almost um having said the first requirement is passion yep. um the second requirement is a head for numbers yeah frankly okay. and i think anybody doing I and mean, it's interesting because you know, in many organisations, the term chief exec has kind of taken over from yeah. director and it kind of perhaps captures more of what you actually do. It's perhaps a better, I've no problem with my job title, but actually what I do is better described as yeah. in, in chief exec uh, role. Uh, and that, I think, emphasises that, that sort of financial and business side of the role. So that is really important. Clearly, it's very important to be um, seen uh both within the organisation and outside the organisation, to be representing and championing the organisation, the yeah. profile. I mean, as, as one of the, you know, one of the largest regional museum and archive services, we do have a national and international profile. That's very important. I think a big part of my job is, is maintaining um, that. Not saying I'm the only person who does it, because I'm not. I don't, I don't even do most of it. Yeah. Other colleagues probably do more than I do, but to be seen to be there yeah, is, is very important. That. And obviously, um, thinking of our key funding stakeholders... For local authorities, Newcastle University, Arts Council, um, what they all expect us, expect yeah, us to do, yeah. expect me to do. Um, quite a bit of time is spent on governance. Yeah. So we have a very complicated governance structure. So, you know, we've just established a new strategic board. 
we have um, our own separate charity, we have um, an audit committee, and we're establishing a trading company. So there are a lot of bodies that, that, that need yeah, servicing huge. through the yeah. governance function. Obviously, I'm not doing all of that personally, but they will see me as the, as the person yeah, who yeah. they expect to engage with. Yeah. So you've, you've stayed in the region which is quite interesting there. Yeah, yeah. So, is that by design? Do you know, I really don't know. I mean, it, <laughs> it, it, well, I think it's a mix. I mean, I, I didn't expect to come back in the region. So, I mean, having done my, uh, my master's, I first of all was in Leicester, did a master's in Bradford, then ended up doing some, um, some research work in, in Oxford. Yeah. And it was sort of in, in, informal research in the university there. And then a job came up in Durham as a research assistant. And at the time I was applying for jobs all over the country, yeah. it was pure chance there happened to be an academic yeah. in Durham who was researching the area that was relevant to me. Yeah. So when he advertised a post, I was very well qualified to get that. Yeah, yeah. But that really was chance. Yeah, yeah. So I came back to Durham in 1983. So did you live in Durham at that point or did you come back and live up with your parents? <laughs> I guess that's... Because it's quite an interesting yeah, thing about whether yeah, yeah. you gravitate back to... You know, so a, a kind of safety net there. Or... Yeah, um, I, I, I got I got a room in the university when I came back, so I have somewhere to live. Right, lived in Durham for three months, and then um, I had a friend who was living in Newcastle, a school friend who was living in Newcastle. So I sort of phoned him and said, "Do you fancy sharing a flat?" Right, a bit a bit of bit of using yeah. using using a network, uh, and then uh, so then moved moved into Newcastle, commuted between Newcastle and Durham, which was which was fine. Um, then got married. Yep. <laughs> Uh, which changes everything. Which changes everything. And um, have been, I, I would describe it as having been lucky enough to be able to work here yeah. throughout a career. Those opportunities don't come up for everybody. Yeah. So I've had yeah. opportunities that, that have come up and I've been able to take that have allowed me to stay yeah. in the region. Um, but equally, you know, I've been lucky enough to travel all over the world with work and, yeah. and do things. And, you know, I would say that it, it's a very, it's a great and very convenient place to live if you want to, Travel yeah. very easy to do that, um, but hasn't it hasn't been a conscious decision. I must stay in the northeast. Yeah, yeah. One of the interesting things there from what you said is that at each stage, you could map onto the, the development of new types of roles that have, have come into play within the museum sector. Yeah. So obviously, when you were back at Wars and Heritage Centre, you weren't quite aware of all of these different different types of roles, these crossover roles, these funding roles. So is that's quite an interesting thing. So as say, the Federation of, of, of Museums that is Tide and Weir Archives and Museums. I'm not sure if that's the right word, Federation. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's, not sometimes, bad, it's not a bad yeah. description. No, I, I use it sometimes, Ian. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, so as that's expanded and these new roles, strategic roles that have come up, which is about finding commonality between those venues and make sure, making sure that you articulate the offer to audiences and responding to economic, political climates that exist outside... This is developed in quite a, a kind of interesting way, which is as your career has developed, these new roles have kind of appeared, which you've been very well suited for. Is that a fair assumption there? Or? Yeah, yeah. I, I think, if you, you know, <clears throat> everybody in your career, it's, you have bits of good luck and bits of bad luck. Yeah, um, yeah. And there are, you know, there are periods which are, which, are, which are difficult and there are periods where, you know, things seem easier. There are some, you know, some roles that you really enjoy. Yeah, falls straight into, yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, you do those for a period of time. Think, God, I've been here a long time. Yeah. Maybe it's actually time, even though I'm really enjoying this, maybe it's time to yeah, to yeah. move and to shift. Um, but yes, I guess I've been suited to some of those times, those opportunities yeah, that, that have yeah. come up, which has certainly, certainly helped. Um, and I think, you know, 
doing the sort of role that I do now, being able to tackle things in a variety of different ways and some different sort of skill sets, yeah. different ways of thinking about things is, is really important. You also talked about the relationships with other venues and that having travelled as well with, with your job. So how important has connections and networks been to you throughout your career? Hugely important. I mean, I think, you know, so much, I mean, I've learned so much from, um, you know, fr- fr- from managing people I've worked with uh, in the places I have worked, but also from, from colleagues and from, you know, from networks. And I think, you know, the best way of learning in terms of management is watching seeing what other people do you might you know and and sometimes see what people do wrong you know and and we all do we all make mistakes and we have to learn from our own mistakes but also we can learn both from other people's mistakes and successes so you know i really really value some of the networks particularly i think as you sort of develop your peer networks you know whether you're a curator your you know curatorial peers for me my peers who are running the other similar services because they're facing the same sort of challenges. And the interesting thing is when you do travel internationally, even though the situation is different, some things it, does it's change. The same. It's the same. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, the specifics are different. Yeah. Um, yeah. And clearly there are some situations that are very, very different. That people are facing very different challenges and problems. But a lot of the time, um, there is, you know, there's real common learning. Have there been mentors throughout your career? Have you been involved in any mentoring schemes along the way, either formally or informally? Um, I mean... Not so much earlier on, but um, more recently, we've done a you know we've done a lot of work with um, one particular uh, troubleshooting consultancy, and, I, and I've used the the chief exec of that as a, an informal mentor, um, somebody who has done you know some some more structured formal sessions, but also somebody who uh, I could speak to and could work could work with, and it can be just really useful having somebody outside your your immediate yeah. um, setup. To, to do that with and I think it could really help if they are if they have some knowledge of your world but are not of your world and that's the case with this the person who's been so helpful to me yeah. uh, knows something of our cultural world but that's not his background. Volunteering has become quite a major part of, of museums how important is it that museums create those opportunities at the moment? Volunteering is obviously huge and I think <coughs> the challenge is people sometimes don't recognise the range of volunteering. So, you know, I include our independent board members, our audit committee members, the, the people who we're recruiting to our trading company board. They are all volunteers. Now, yeah. that, that might be somebody who's, you know, a business person, an accountant, chief executive of NHS Foundation Trust. They are volunteering to support yeah. us through contributing to our, our boards. At the same time, um, I think pretty well every area of what we do in this in this organisation has volunteers, you yeah. know, working there from um, the people who run the steam trains at Stevenson Railway Museum to volunteers working with the costume collection to um, the people, you know, the volunteers from the Friends of the Lang Art Gallery do guided tours there. Um, obviously, we have a lot of placements coming in, um, school placements, student placements, undergraduates, postgraduates, people doing specific programmes, be that you know, an MPRAC, be that a collaborative PhD, um, and people who might just come in and want to do a little bit of volunteer. One of the things we've, do, we've got now through Volunteer Maker is you know, people can pick up information on the app about volunteering opportunities, yeah. do um, you know, small-scale um, dist- distance volunteering, yeah. so you don't have to even be physically do there, home. Yeah. do it from home, yeah. which might make it easier for people who are busy doing other things. Yeah. And, you know, and I recognise the challenge in terms of diversifying the workforce 
right. if people are expected to do you know a long period of, of volunteering in order to get into the business yeah. that really discriminates against people who can't afford to do that if you were starting out again now what advice would you pass on um i think what what i would really say is seize opportunities <clears throat> and um I think, you know, like most 18-year-olds, I'm probably a bit lacking in confidence. Um, and I think it's quite hard being confident when you are 18. Yeah. But, you know, be as confident as you can. Um, look to people who you think are um, interesting, are going to be influencers, and ask for a bit of somebody's time. The worst can, can happen is they say no. Yeah. You know, if you see somebody and you think, oh, I really like what they're doing, um, ask them if you can go and have a coffee with them. Yeah. Um, say they may say no, and that's okay, you, you move on. Yeah. But... Um, yeah, uh, seize opportunity, I think, is the, is the greatest advice. The, the last question is, what do you perceive to be the greatest challenge within the cultural sector at the moment, or challenges, plural? I think it's a question that you have to answer on so many levels. So um, I think as a cultural sector, we can't ignore the big world issues. So we are citizens of, of the world, and those big world issues, um, climate change migration, growing gap between rich and poor, um, those, we have to be aware of, yeah. of those at, at the, the, the big world um, level. level yeah. um, I think one of the challenges, and again, I'm going to be a bit ethnocentric here, so if I'm talking, so I think it's, it, may, it is going to be different whether which specific country you're in, whether you're in the East or the West. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, it's impossible to say there's something that applies across the whole cultural sector. I think in a, in a UK context, um, we have a you know a challenge around uh, intrinsic value and instrumentalism. So, um, do people see us as uh, and by by people I'm being very deliberately unspecific there. Um, do people see us as being um, a nice to have? That's quite a nice thing. Or do they see us as being part of the social fabric of society, making a huge contribution to to, to civil and civic society? And I think we have to. Um, do a bit more to get our case across there and um, not be protectionist <coughs> but really think what you know almost like a phrase that people have used that, that I've used from time to time is the cost of loss so yeah. imagine our society without the cultural sector and I think that would be pretty grim. Thank you very much that's all of my questions thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the podcast. Don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud and Facebook using the handle Cultural Peeps. And if you want a bit more information about the Careers Pathway project or about any of the conversations or participants, then there's a project blog which is available at culturalpeeps.wordpress.com. 